0: Oh, Glorious Day, that is the song we just finished with, and it is incredibly appropriate to set the stage for everything that we are going to be talking about. Now, let me also set the stage by telling you that I want to start with a passage of Scripture that is very strange on Easter Sunday morning. Even when I decided to build the message around this passage, I thought to myself, that is really strange. I'm not sure how it's going to come together. But as is the way of God, as I started developing the message and the Lord was working with me on it, it started to make more and more sense to me until this morning. And then you'll understand why in in just a minute. So I'm going to ask you if you brought a Bible with you, and even if you didn't, there are some in the chair racks, grab a Bible and turn with me to, are you ready for this, on Easter Sunday, the Song of Solomon. We're going to go to the Song of Solomon. Now, if you're not sure how to find it, right in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. If you will turn there, then turn to the right one book, you'll hit Proverbs. Turn right one more time, you'll hit the book of Ecclesiastes. Then turn right one more time, and you're in the book of Song of Solomon. Now, there is a lot of controversy that surrounds this book. For people that are familiar with it, you know what that controversy might be. It's one of the most explicit love stories you will find in the Bible. That's the biggest controversy. But there are other kind of interesting things about it as well, starting with the title. There are some people that translate the title of the book, The Song of Solomon, just like I said this morning. Here, we'll put it up on the screen for you. The Song of Solomon. Most of the people that translate the title of this book that way believe that it is a love story written between Solomon and his favorite wife. Then there's a group of editors that translate the title of this book, The Song of Songs. Now, most of the editors that translate it that way, and you may be holding a Bible that does that very thing, that translates it, The Song of Songs, they do so believing that it is an allegorical book that really shows us the love story between Jesus and His church. All the way back in the Old Testament, Jesus and the church. So there's a a bit of a battle that rages over the very title of the book, and it comes from the first verse in the first chapter, where Solomon writes, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That's where the title comes from. So you can see how they come up with Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. So there's this huge debate that goes back and forth, and when you see the title, you get a good indication of how the editors or the translators are viewing the whole book. For the sake of this morning's message, we're going to go with the Song of Songs, the love story between Jesus and his church. By doing so, what we're really doing is equating this book with other statements that you find in Scripture, like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the song of songs. This is how Jesus loves his church. So this morning, I want us to focus on just a few verses. We're going to read them here in the beginning, and then we're going to come back to them at the end, and in between the two, I'm going to say a lot. So it's going to sound to you like, really, is that the center of this passage? It's the bookends, if you will, the beginning and the end. Chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Now, if you happen to look at the headings of this, this is the bride speaking to her groom. So these words will sound a lot better coming from the mouth of my bride than they will from me. So Tina's going to read for us Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. If you're following along, listen close to this. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Thank you very much, Tina. Now, the part that I want us to grab can be paraphrased just like this, and I'll show it to you a little later in the service, but listen to this. Winter is over. (laughs) The time of singing has come. A little after six this morning, I lifted the shade right above our bed, and I looked outside and thought, okay, God, you, you got me, you got me. Winter is over, the time of singing has come. No matter how much snow is on the ground, that will still be true on Easter Sunday. Let's pray together, and we'll get into this. Father in heaven, I want to ask you to give us great insight this morning. We're going to talk about some hidden things in Scripture Father, would you pull them out for us? We're going to look at some powerful ways that you drive home the point of the resurrection and what it means to us. I pray that we will pay close attention. Father, some of the things that we're going to talk about are, well, they fit in the category of the deep things of your word. Would you help us dive equally deep? And Father, some of the things that we're going to talk about, well, they change our lives. Would you make us changeable and moldable as you speak to us this morning? We ask that in Jesus' name and with great expectation. Amen. A few years ago, the publication Christianity Today ran an article titled very simply, Did You Know? That's the, the title, Did You Know? It was written by a group of archaeologists and anthropologists that came together with things that they had discovered about ancient Israel. Now remember, this is coming from archaeology and anthropology together, the study of artifacts and the study of society. So they brought their study together to build a list of things that really shine a light on what ancient Israel looked like what it was like to live there during the time of Jesus. I want to show you just 15 of the things that they had to share. There are other things on their list in this article. This is just 15 of the things that I want you to see. Pay close attention. One of them will make you go, what's that now? You'll see which one. Here we go. Number one, the population of Palestine in Jesus' day was approximately 500,000 to 600,000. About that of Vermont, Boston, or Jerusalem today. Now, when it says the population of Palestine, we're talking about all of ancient Israel. We're talking about the whole of the nation. Interestingly enough, today, the population of all of Israel is north of 6 million. So, there's a big difference, and there has been incredible growth since 1948. But that's a discussion for another time. Number two. Jerusalem was a city of some 55,000, but during major feast it could swell to 180,000. So on a day-to-day basis, those that lived in the city of Jerusalem, about 55,000. Special days over triple that. Hold on to that one. Number 3. Children in Jesus day played games similar to hopscotch and jacks. I love the fact that these two groups of scientists didn't just leave it there with children. Look at number four. Whistles, rattles, toy animals on wheels, hoops, and spinning tops have been found by archaeologists. Actually, pay close attention to number five. Older children and adults found time to play, too, mainly with board games. A form of checkers was popular then. Here's number six. Tradesmen would be instantly recognizable by the symbols they wore. This is kind of interesting. It'd be strange in our world today, but it might be kind of handy too. Here you go. Number seven, carpenters stuck wood chips behind their ears. Tailors stuck needles in their tunics. And dyers wore colored rags. Can you imagine, especially the guys that are in this room, how much conversation we could cut through just by those symbols? You walk up to somebody, now you know what they do for a living. You just dropped half your conversation right there. It's it's just gone. Number ten, but on the Sabbath, those symbols were left at home. Everybody was the same. Number eleven, At the two meals each day, bread was the main food. Number 12. The light breakfast, often flatbread olives and cheese from goats or sheep, were carried to work and eaten at mid-morning. That's when breakfast was consumed. Number 13. Dinners were more substantial, consisting of vegetable, lentil stew, bread, barley for the poor and wheat for the rich, fruit, eggs and or cheese. Number 14. Fish was a common staple, but red meat was reserved for special occasions. And number 15, there's a part of this that might catch your attention. Locusts were a delicacy and reportedly taste like shrimp. Jews wouldn't have known that, however, since shrimp and all other crustaceans were unclean. I don't want to find out. Just not even interested in finding out. I'm going to trust the scientist on this one. Now, today we're not talking about populations, we're not talking about trades, we're not talking about people that wore different markers, we're not talking about toys and all those types of things, we're talking about Jesus. But in order to get into that, I want to pull number two back out for you so that you look really closely. Take a look at this. Jerusalem was a city of some 55,000, but during major feast, it could swell to 180,000 now here's why that is so important Jesus was crucified during the week of Passover he was crucified in Jerusalem normally there would be 55,000 or so people that would walk the streets but when Jesus hung on the cross the city had swelled to 180,000 plus there were a lot of people there there were a lot of people that were present when jesus died on the cross but it is a little known fact that there would have been a lot of people there when he rose from the grave as well now i want you to hang on tight for what we're about to get into in the book of leviticus in the old testament there are seven major feasts that are lined out for the jewish people i want you to join me in leviticus chapter 23 Still in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. Seven major feasts. The Lord had great expectation of those feasts. Verse 3 of chapter 23. Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, God starts this teaching out by talking about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not a specific feast, but it is a holy day. To the Jewish people, it is a holy day, and God has great expectations of it. The feasts that we are about to get into were not all celebrated on the Sabbath. They could fall anywhere in the calendar. They could fall anywhere throughout the course of the week. But some of them had specific days that they were required. And it gets really interesting as you see it. Now, let's just get into the first four of the seven. Verse four. There are the appointed feast of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month, is the feast of the unleavened bread of the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now there's feast number one, the feast of Passover. And there's feast number two, which follows on the very next day. It is called the feast of of unleavened bread. So you have day one, Passover, and on the very next day, you have the feast of unleavened bread. That could happen on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath, and then on a Sunday, or it could happen on a Tuesday and Wednesday. It is all dependent upon the calendar, not the day of the week, but the calendar. Everybody following me? Shake your head yes, because this is about to get super cool. So here we go, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now there's feast number three the Feast of First Fruits. Different than the first two feasts, it is to be celebrated on the day after the Sabbath, or what we would know, according to our calendar, as Saturday. So it was to be celebrated on a Sunday. A specific day of the week is required for that feast. And then, 50 days later, you get into the fourth Feast, what is referred to in the Bible as the Feast of Weeks, or we know it as Pentecost. In the New Testament, that's the day that the Holy Spirit came when Peter was preaching at Pentecost. That happened on the fourth feast commanded by God. We're not really going to get into that one today. I just want you to see how it is a specific day as well, marked 50 days from Passover. It's the first three that are quite intriguing. And they tie back to that second thing that the archaeologist and the anthropologist told us. On an average day, the population in Jerusalem is about 55,000 people. But on the feast days, it would swell somewhere north of 180,000. Now, it makes perfect sense to us, perfect sense to us, that on Passover, there'd have been 180,000 people there, the day Jesus was crucified but in the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke the three that closely mirror one another there is no indication at all that the people left after the Passover meal after they celebrated Passover they didn't go home they would have stayed in Jerusalem they would have been there on the day of resurrection which just happened to be the feast of first fruits I want you to understand exactly what the Feast of First Fruits was. That was celebrated in the spring at an early harvest. It was celebrated during a time of faith, of great faith, because the people were commanded to bring specific offerings before God when they had not harvested anything for months and months and months and months. Their pantries were were running low. They were waiting for the harvest during the Feast of Weeks 50 days after this. So 50 days prior to their main harvest, when they were harvesting very few things, little bit of barley, little bit of wheat, they were to bring large portions of it and give it before the Lord. And there were commands attached to how they were supposed to do that. The people remained in Jerusalem so they could because without celebrating the Feast of 1st, fruits. They were really putting themselves in jeopardy of not being blessed by God. So they wanted to make sure they received the blessing. A great scholar named R.C. Sproul sums it up this way. This required a great deal of faith on the part of the Israelites as they would be giving the offering of first fruits at a time when not much was ready to be harvested. They had to trust God that He would indeed provide the fullness of grain that had yet to come forth. Something that from a human perspective was far from certain, given the people's utter dependence on the right amount of rainfall and so forth to give the best crop. That was a day of great faith. They were looking forward. Now, the other two feasts, the ones that we just talked about, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was looking back. That was celebrating things God had already done. But when we come to the Feast of First Fruits, that means we've got to look forward And we have to do so with great faith. Now, here's where this gets really cool. I promised you it was going to get really cool. On the week that Jesus died, are you ready for this? The week that Jesus died, I want you to listen really close. Make sure that you grab this. On the week that Jesus died, Passover was on Friday. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was on Saturday. And the Feast of First Fruits was on Sunday. Nobody went home. Nobody went home. They would have been there for Passover, and they would have stayed all the way to the third feast, thus fulfilling this really interesting prophecy in the New Testament. We find it in places like this, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. We're all familiar with this. This is why you're here today. But on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were there, they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "'Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen.'" Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. All these people were there and now they got word that Jesus wasn't in the grave and the angels are saying to him very simply, he told you it was going to be that way. On the third day, he was going to rise. And then there's this subtlety, though it doesn't say it in Scripture, there's this subtle implication that they were saying, and take a look around you. There's a whole lot of people here. Why are they here? Because it is the feast of, do you remember, first fruits. Jesus is the first one to rise from the grave. And it happened on day three, just as he said it would. So we have this fulfillment of prophecy and then this really cool addition to it. Friday was Passover. Saturday was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. But we have people still that question how that could work. It doesn't make sense to them because we know that Jesus celebrated the Passover meal Thursday night at about midnight. And then he was crucified Friday afternoon, and then he rose on Sunday morning, very early in the morning. How is that three days? People try to argue this tiny little detail, and in the argument of it, they miss the significance of everything that was happening. But if you're one of the people that likes to argue that detail, let's put it to rest for you this morning. Here's the way to look at it. The wrestling match comes simply from the fact that we try to mark time the way our calendars and our watches do it. We don't mark time the way they did in Israel during the time of Jesus. So there's a simple way to understand it. Here it is for you. This chart, will lay it out. Day one of the three days started Thursday night at sundown. That's when their days began, and they ended the following day at sundown. So the first day was Passover. That was the day that Jesus celebrated it. It began Thursday night at sundown. Jesus celebrated about midnight with the disciples on day one. And on that same day, he was crucified in the afternoon. All of that took place on the same day. Are you following me? Jesus took the Passover meal with the disciples at midnight, then he was arrested in the early hours of the morning, he was tried right after that, kangaroo court, then he was crucified that afternoon, and he was taken off of the cross before six o'clock that night when he was put in the grave so that day two, known as Holy Saturday, could begin. And it began Friday at sunset, and it went until Saturday at sunset. And on that particular year, they were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread the whole time. And that's going to become really significant for you in a minute. Then Saturday night at sunset, we began day three, resurrection day, and it culminated on Sunday at sunset. Three days. Make sense? Hopefully that puts to rest for you the argument. Yes, he was crucified on Friday, and he rose on Sunday. And if you look at it the way we look at time, you can stumble across that, believing that it's a contradiction even in biblical prophecy. It's not. It's not. When God says it, he means it. When God says he will rise on the third day, he means it. And oftentimes, when we get past the arguments of it, the things that are designed by the devil to cause us to stumble over it, we get into the depth of the whole thing where we discover cool things. Like Friday was Passover. Saturday was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Sunday, Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. And you may think to yourself, and you'd be justified in this, you may think to yourself, Preacher, that is a whole bunch of Old Testament on Easter Sunday. How in the world does that apply to us as New Testament Christians, people living under grace? I am so happy you ask. I am so happy you ask, because the New Testament talks about every one of these feasts. The New Testament puts Jesus in the middle of every one of these feasts. And by the way, on day two and three, we get pulled right into them. We get pulled right into them. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll start with Passover. On Passover at the celebration, lambs were slaughtered. Upward to a quarter of a million were slaughtered every year. Why would that be? Because the population of Jerusalem would swell over 180,000. All these people would come into the area. All these Jews would come into the area And archaeologists and anthropologists have said roughly a quarter of a million lambs would be slaughtered on that day. Can you imagine all the priests required to do that? Can you imagine all of the blood that flowed, literally flowed, through the temple on the day of Passover? Well, when John the Baptist looked on Jesus, he made this statement. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Passover Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God. From that point forward in the Gospels, we find Jesus making reference to it all the time. He would become the Passover Lamb the one that would be sacrificed to take away our sins. All those lambs of the Old Testament, they were offered as a sin sacrifice. Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the entire world. That's why He had to be sacrificed. That's why He had to be crucified on Passover. And He was on the exact day of Passover. Jesus hung on the cross. Well, then there's this really curious, really curious feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, it was a feast designed to look back. When it looked back, it looked back at the Exodus when the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, were brought out of captivity in Egypt. They had to leave so early in the morning they weren't able to put any leaven in their dough that they had been making for their bread for those daily meals. So God told them, you take that dough with you and you'll eat it later And it would not have any leaven in it. So they left before they leavened their bread. And they did so under the command of God. Well, in Scripture, leaven is this symbol of sin. Leaven and yeast is symbolic of sin. And so we are told to get that out of our life. And the celebration of the feast of unleavened bread is all about that. It's interesting for us because we're not Jewish to figure out how that connects, but oh boy does it connect. I follow a website of Messianic Jews and every once in a while some really intriguing things get put on that through bloggers that write for them. There is one about the Feast of Unleavened Bread that is just really interesting. Remember this is written by a Messianic Jew, a a lady. She writes, and I don't know her name or I'd tell you, I'd a lady. Here it is. The Feast of Unleavened Bread gives those who participate in it such a great picture of the sin in our lives. The Bible often uses yeast or leaven to signify sin. In the process of cleaning it out of our homes, we realize very quickly how difficult it is to find and remove it all. So when the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for seven days no yeast is allowed in their home. No leaven at all. They take every piece of it out. Every bit. It isn't that they just don't use it. They clean it out. They get it out. For seven days, it's gone. It's out. Listen to what she says. There are crumbs in the corners of our pantries and even under our refrigerators. In a house like mine with seven people, is it even possible to get it all? But this is the part of this feast that points us right to Jesus. When we see how difficult it is to get all the leaven out of our homes, we realize just how difficult it is to get the sin out of our lives. It's easy to find the obvious loaves of bread in the pantry, but you have to really hunt for the Cheerios between the couch cushions. In the same way, it's easier to get the big, obvious sins out of our lives, but more difficult to get the hidden, seemingly small ones out before they fester. Even though we can't get all of the sin out of our lives, we have Jesus to cover them all, though we should still strive to live in a way that pleases God. If we believe in Jesus as our Savior, remember, she's a Jew. He even forgives the sins we'd rather leave in the dark places under the fridge. Even if the home of our life is sparkling clean, chances are that there's some leaven hiding somewhere. This is why we need Jesus. He's the only one capable of perfectly cleaning the homes of our lives, which allows us to have a relationship with a holy God. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful picture. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that's why it is so significant that it happened during the crucifixion week. Showing us what Jesus does for us. He cleans out all the leaven. He cleans out all the sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was not accidental in its placement during the crucifixion account. It was on day two. Jesus died for us, and then he went to work cleaning things out of our homes. Which, by the way, then, if you're one of those people that thinks I can't come into a relationship with Jesus because there's still too much sin in my life, get the order right. Jesus died for you. Accept that, and then let him go to work cleaning you up, taking care of all the sin. Don't reverse the order because if you reverse the order, you will never come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because you will believe it's more important for you to do what you can do rather than Jesus doing what He did on Passover when He died on the cross. So make sure you get the order right. It's Passover. Jesus died as the Lamb of God. And then it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He goes to work cleaning up our homes. And then there's this third feast. But let's just pay close attention to what the bible says about the feast of unleavened bread because that's is good stuff first corinthians chapter 5 why don't you turn there with me there are all kinds of ways that we are described in the new testament we get called children of god we get called co-heirs with Jesus. We get these wonderful, beautiful titles. And it's just such an amazing thing for us when we recognize that to live as a redeemed child of the King, we get brand new titles in our life. And, and a lot of the old ways that we looked at ourselves are taken away. But when it comes to this idea of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and what Jesus does for us, Paul makes it really real. Really real. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. (laughs) Oh, come on. It's not gonna get any better than that. Isn't that cool? The Bible tells us that once Jesus goes to work on us, we become a new lump. You're you're a child of God, no question about it, but you're a new lump. I liked it a lot more than you apparently did. As you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See how we get pulled into the feast? In the New Testament, it isn't just Jesus in the feast, it's us now. Passover was all about him, but here we are right now in the midst of this feast This is what Jesus does for us, makes us a new lump. But then that third feast, this is the one that we're here for today, the Feast of first fruits. This one celebrates Jesus coming out of the grave. He was the first one. He was the first one. And in faith, we believe that we can follow. In faith, we believe that He offers us new life, that we'll be a part of the harvest as well. In faith, we get to believe that Jesus led the way and all we have to do is follow him. And we can make our way through the tomb. We can make our way into the presence of God. We can start a new life with him right now because death holds no victory over us any longer because of the feast of first fruits that happened on Sunday. It happened on Sunday. And there were crowds there to hear it. Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He was the first fruits. And they were celebrating it on that Sunday. Though most of them had no idea, they had no idea what was to come. Their eyes would be opened. They were there to celebrate the grain offering that Leviticus lays out. They were there to celebrate the wine offering that Leviticus laid out. But when they really got to the heart of the matter, what they would discover is they were there to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And 50 days later... Fifty days later on feast number four at Pentecost when people came back into Jerusalem and the ranks of the town, the population of the town swelled up again. Thousands of people, according to the book of Acts, would respond to that at Pentecost. The feast of weeks which was given to celebrate the harvest. See how all of those things come together from the Old Testament to the New to show us what Jesus did for us. Man, that is so cool. That is so cool. Day one, Friday, was Passover. Jesus died. Day two, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remind us what He does for us. Day three, looked forward to what He would do for us as He led the way through the grave. And that is the message of Easter. And according to Solomon, we can sum it up this way. Winter is over. The time for singing has come. The thing about that first fruits offering is they were bringing all of that together just as winter was over, before they really had an opportunity to see what the harvest would look like. We set out to find a bunch of live plants this year that we could put up here with you. You know how hard that is this time of year? It's extremely difficult. So we have things of of different stages that are up here on the stage showing us that winter is over time of singing has come, but it's early, so we have to look forward with faith. You were given some seeds just to remind you that winter is over. The time of singing has come, and if you can look at that pack of seeds, whether you plant them or stick them in your Bible or set them on a shelf, whatever it is, let them be a reminder to you that the winter of your life because of Jesus is over, and the time of singing has come, because there were three feasts back to back to show us what to celebrate when it comes to our Lord and Savior. That's pretty cool. The winter is over. The time of singing has come. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together and sing. Father in heaven, thank you for these things that are tucked away in our Bibles. Thank you that as your Spirit leads the way and we get to understand them, we can see what it means for us. The time of singing and celebration has come as we are united with you. And the song of songs, as we get to make those types of declarations about you, because of you, winter is over. The winter of our lives is over. The time of singing and celebration is here. There is no day of the year where that is more obvious Than today, as we celebrate you. Father, we don't come together today celebrating that you died on the cross. We come together today celebrating that you came out of the grave, that it couldn't hold you, the stone couldn't block you. Nothing, nothing could keep you from getting to us. Thank you for that, Father. We will celebrate. And we'll do so with singing, with worship. We'll do so with our lives. Father, we cannot say thank you strong enough because you've changed us. Turned us into a new lump. Mold us into what you want us to be. That's our prayer in Jesus' name.